0: Now, it's a pleasure to introduce for his uh, Cato University debut, uh, my colleague, uh, Jason Kuznicki. Uh, We believe in covering the whole waterfront, so we dealt with past history, and he's going to talk about the future history of liberty. He's the editor of Cato Books and of Cato Unbound, which I have to say is really an astonishing accomplishment because coming up with so many issues and so many people to write interesting and provocative things uh, is really an accomplishment. I cannot imagine how he does it. His first book, Technology and the End of Authority, What is Government? looks at the Western political theory from a libertarian perspective. He was involved with the Encyclopedia of Libertarianism. He's earned a PhD in history from Johns Hopkins University, and he's a very fine colleague, Jason.
1: Thanks. In the words of Rabbi Saul Lieberman, nonsense is nonsense, but the history of nonsense is scholarship. (laughs) I'm going to beg your indulgence in a little bit of scholarship. Uh, One book in my life did a great deal to make me a libertarian completely by accident. It wasn't Atlas Shrugged. It wasn't The Road to Serfdom. It wasn't A Conflict of Visions. It was a book that probably none of you have heard of, and that was not a libertarian book. It was called The Book of Predictions. And it was published in 1980. The editors were David Walczynski, Amy Wallace, and Irving Wallace. And what they did was they solicited predictions from prominent American intellectuals And by this, I I mean uh, almost anybody they could find, really, from academics to futurists to science fiction writers to uh, psychics and astrologers, and it got sort of weirder from there. Uh, but, But it was a very interesting book to grow up with because I got to watch every year as the predictions either came true or did not come true. The predictions were by people, some of whom uh, have uh, names you'd probably recognize, like Arthur C. Clarke, or Timothy Leary, or Gene Dixon. Among libertarians, there were a couple of representatives as well. Carl Hess and Murray Rothbard both made predictions in the book. Uh, They, uh, sad to say, did not do terribly well either. But but I was, I was a very avid reader as a child, and I every year on New Year's Day would take out the book of predictions and look into it and see whether the predictions for that year had happened or not. And I learned to get used to disappointment. But it only took me really a few years to learn the most important lesson that I could possibly teach you from this book, which is as follows. Whenever anyone tries to predict the future, if they are not predicting the occurrence of a regular or prearranged event, the chances are they are probably dead wrong. We can predict eclipses. We can predict presidential elections. Beyond that, things tend to get hazy. For example, there was a list of projected GDP rankings for various political entities in the world in the year 2020. The European Union did not make this list, but the Soviet Union did. Now, don't laugh. We're talking about the Soviet Union here. This is, this is as we all know now, as we all know, in 1990, the Soviet Union had established the first permanent colony on the moon. Uh, and, and in 1998, they invented the warp drive. And and lest we forget, in 1994, they waged a successful nuclear war against us, which they did again in 1987, and in 1993, and in 2000, and I'm told that they're planning another one in 2030. We Americans will not be doing too badly either by the year 2030, and in fact, not even in our own time are we doing so badly. By now, by now we will have cities underwater, cities underground, cities in space. We will have, of course, cured cancer several times over. In 1999, we successfully eradicated the last infectious disease, except for the one that was accidentally brought back from Alpha Centauri. Thanks a lot, Soviet Union. Some of these predictions are really silly, but some of them are wrong in an interesting instructive way. So for example, one predictor who was relatively astute, not crazy, not a psychic, said that in the future computers will be very important. They will be so important that in your house you will probably have a computer terminal. And you will use your computer terminal to communicate with a mainframe, and that mainframe will be located somewhere in your neighborhood. And attached to it, there will be this wonderful device called a printer. And there will be a central mainframe and a central printer for your neighborhood, so that when you want a book, you will go to the printer and get your book. What this prediction says to me, or what it is a representative of, is a trend in, I would say, the large majority of attempts to forecast the future. It makes the mistake of being too centralized. This is a common, common mistake. Attempts to predict the future are frequently too centralized. They imagine that there is a central authority, that there is a central manufacturing system, that there is a central organizing principle to societies, large or small, that somehow manages or runs everything. I I mention all of these various predictions, the crazy ones, the less crazy ones, because it's a a way to show uh, not just that people had odd ideas, but really that the whole subject of futurology stinks. But there is an important lesson for libertarians here. There's a very important lesson that has both interesting causes and interesting consequences. The fact that we are bad at predicting has lots of interesting causes and interesting consequences. And I'm going to talk a little bit about those throughout the rest of this this, uh, talk. Now, since 1980, of course, people have still continued to try to predict the future. They still find this an interesting subject. But there have been somewhat more rigorous attempts in recent years to figure out what things predict either a good prediction or a bad prediction? How can we tell whether someone is likely to be a good predictor or a bad predictor? Uh, There's a researcher at the University of Pennsylvania called Philip Tetlock. And Professor Tetlock has organized forecasting tournaments where he develops questions and then poses them to experts and asks the experts to predict the answer to what will be, for example, the gross domestic product of Venezuela five years hence. And he has found that experts, even experts in their particular fields making predictions about their fields, are commonly not better than chance. Indeed, they are often worse than simply extrapolating a trend line from known data. He also found, I think very interestingly, that predictors who had had the largest presence in the news media were the worst of the lot by far. <laughs> some things, some things can help predictors do somewhat better, although we are nowhere near, nowhere near an adequate science of futurology. Things that can help include using evidence from a wide variety of different types of sources thinking in terms of probability rather than certainty, and this one's really hard, being willing to admit error. Being willing to admit when you are wrong is a really difficult thing. As I tell the Cato interns every term, the most liberating words in all of punditry are simply, I regret the error. Now, there should be no shame in this. Because admitting an error is the beginning of abandoning it and trying to do better. Unfortunately, unfortunately, politics tends to make this much more difficult. Because politics causes people to look out for the members of their political tribe, to try to back them up, to circle the wagons, and to deny error rather than using it as an occasion to improve themselves. One individual who has noticed this is the libertarian economist at George Mason University, Brian Kaplan. Brian Kaplan has developed a method of predicting the future that seems very promising to me, which is that before he will admit a prediction, he encourages very strongly the predictor to bet on it. You want to be a pundit in his book? You bet on your beliefs. Put some money on the line. And suddenly, he observes, most people will become much more cautious. They will become much more circumspect about the types of claims they want to make. When they are forced to quantify a claim, often it dissolves. And Brian keeps a record of his bets, which is public on his website. And uh, he's had many bets over the years. And the only thing certain in all of futurology, apparently, is don't bet against Brian Kaplan, because he's very good at it. My talk tonight is not just about how pundits are terrible or about how Brian Kaplan is really quite interesting and brilliant, although I certainly believe both those things. Brian is a brilliant guy, and pundits usually are terrible, regardless of what political party they belong to. But that's not what I'm here to talk about. I'm here to talk about the causes of this problem with punditry and with futurology and the consequences. The first reason that we are not able to predict the future with any kind of reliability comes straight from Friedrich Hayek, who noted that the mind has a peculiar inability to predict its own advance. And this is not just that the future is hard, but rather that what we think, five years hence, cannot be known to us unless we think it already. Because the very act of predicting it means that we have somehow got access to that knowledge. It's just knowledge we already have. We can attempt to extrapolate from what we know, But that's very, very difficult. When we attempt to predict advances that have not yet been made, like the warp drive, that invites disaster. But it's a very alluring temptation to try to do so. The inability of the mind to foresee its own advance is one of the reasons why the future will always surprise us. The other reason, related reason really, is that not all tastes, values, and desires of individual human beings are accessible even to them. And that sounds very weird if it's an idea that you're not used to thinking. But I will give you an example that I find especially dramatic. Consider your own face. You probably know things about your face that your wife or your husband does not know. You probably have very considered opinions about what kind of eyewear looks better or worse, what kind of hat or cosmetics, what kind of shaving products you prefer. All of these things are known to you, but only partially. Only partially, sometimes you'll walk into a store and see a hat that you've never seen before, and you'll say, "Ah, this is perfect. Hey, I did not know that, but this hat, this is the one. And it is the fact of this inaccessibility of consumer tastes and values and preferences, consumers' desire for various products. It's the fact of this inaccessibility of the knowledge that means that economic planning is always impossible to do in advance when you want to try to plan for an entire society. It is not just your face that you know these types of things about. In fact, everything you come into contact with, you have acquired tacit knowledge that's sitting in your head that may not be fully accessible to you. But when the time comes, you'll recall some small fact, some detail about an experience that you've had that has until then, not been accessible to you, but then comes to the fore and you say, aha, this is what I want. I know what I want now. I was having a discussion with one of the participants here uh, just uh, yesterday about advertising and why is it that advertising is okay. A lot of people who are not free market minded people will say that advertising is a scam and that it's wrong somehow, that it's evil, or that it's always fundamentally aimed at trickery. And I would suggest that no, advertising is not aimed at tricking the consumer. It's aimed at getting us to consider that tacit knowledge that we might have. But by the same token, it takes work to consider it. It takes work to call it up, and it takes a conjunction of experiences. You need to be thinking about hats or eyewear or shaving. And you need to confront a product, and you need to think about the product, and say, well, is this what I want, or is it not? And the reasons for your choice may be obscure up until that point. When we go to predict the future, however, this kind of knowledge is not very readily accessible. And so people who predict the future generally do not rely on it. Generally, when people think about the future, they tend to present large or society-wide moralized narratives, stories with heroes and villains. And they tend to disregard things like tacit knowledge or individual, individualized incentives, things that would motivate me but might not motivate you. People stop thinking about that. And they shift into a different moral reasoning mode when they're talking about the future. And to my mind, the individual who best exemplifies this tendency in history is Karl Marx. Before I critique Karl Marx, I'm going to attempt to present his side of the case as fairly as I possibly can. So bear in mind, I'm not a communist. (laughs) Marx. And Marx was, uh, was very concerned about the conditions of the working class, in part because he had read a book by Friedrich Engels called The Conditions of the Working Class in England. This was published in 1845. And it was, frankly, a horrifying book. We heard earlier about Davy Crockett's visit to the mills in Lowell, Massachusetts. And he reported a, a really sunny, idyllic sort of uh, picture of what was going on there. It was very nice, according to his account. If you can picture as diametrically opposite an account as possible, that's something like what Engel's account was like. To read Engel's book, the workers in Manchester were desperate. They were starving, filthy, illiterate, ill-paid. They worked long hours in unpleasant and dangerous conditions. They were there under constraint, and everything was absolutely miserable. Now, which of these accounts was true? Which one was true? I have to say, honestly, as a historian, I think that the Davy Crockett picture of the factories is a little bit too rosy. And I think that the Engels picture was was entirely too pessimistic. But this is not to say that work in the early factories was pleasant, or easy, or that it was short, or that it was well paid. It was none of those things. Working in the early factories was, in fact, quite hard. Conditions were difficult. Marx had an explanation for all of this. His explanation falls under the term of alienated labor. In a lot of ways, Marx was not a prophet of the future. In a lot of ways, Marx was actually a traditionalist. Marx liked artisanal production. Marx liked the idea of someone who was a tailor who started out with your measurements and cloth that they had picked out. And he takes the measurements from the customer and the cloth that he has selected himself and he makes the garment from start to finish using all of his own skills and not anyone else's skills, and no machines, and, and all of the production is under the control of one person, and therefore it is not alienated. This is non alienated labor. To Marx, this was a kind of ideal. Non alienated labor meant a lot of different things for the worker. It meant they had first and foremost control of the means of production, which was their own skill. Their own skill created the entire product from start to finish. And what that meant was that they also got to keep the profits. And they also got to set their own schedule. And to him, there was something very admirable about that. And what Marx observed in the factories was that this story was breaking down. What looked previously like the Lockean story of mixing your labor with raw substance and turning it into something new and thereby acquiring a property title over it, that wasn't actually all that bad to him. But what he saw in the factories he called alienated labor. And he said it's something very different. Where the workers do not own the means of production. Where the capitalists own the means of production where the workers' skills may be very limited, and where their recompense for labor was not something that came directly to them, unshared. It was shared with the capitalists, whom Marx believed were taking more and more and more. Marx thought a lot about the future. And he bemoaned that under capitalism, all that is solid melts into air. The old traditional ways were disappearing and something very new and very frightening was taking its place. And he extrapolated from this to a future in which the working class was so immiserated and so desperate that they would have no choice but to stage a revolution, seize the means of production, and implement a communism. And when they did so, they would once again enjoy non-alienated labor, because they would once again own the means of production. Now, this story is, I would say, a highly incomplete one. What did bring these people to the first factories? What brought them to the early factories at the beginning of the Industrial Revolution? Marx believed that they had no other choice. Now in many cases, they absolutely did have a choice. They had come from a life of subsistence farming in the countryside, which they found much, much more disagreeable and more desperate. I don't want to sugarcoat early industrialism, which was in fact quite hard on workers. it is possible, and I think quite true, that they were fleeing something they found still more disagreeable than that. And although factories weren't always a clear improvement, we can understand why they wanted to move, why they wanted to try something different. They were not necessarily dupes, they were not helpless victims. In most cases, they weren't even artisans. In most cases, they were people who were not going to be in any system of production at all. And they were trying to make extra money. They were, in short, responding to incentives. Incentives mean that human actions will always be, to some degree, disparate. Because different people have different tastes and values and priorities in their life. They have different skills and goals and they will therefore move in different directions. Marx did not see this. What he saw was a single social class operating simply in response to the loss of the means of production. When Marx looked at the proletariat, he therefore saw an increasingly undifferentiated mass, and he assumed that that trend would continue. The reality, however, is that workers' incentives were already pulling them in different directions than Marx had imagined. Workers organized not to foment a communist revolution, but simply to get pay raises, or to get shorter hours, or to get better working conditions. Workers organized also to repeal the punitive tariffs that then existed on imported grain in the United Kingdom. So that the year after Engels' book was published, a cross-social class coalition gathered together politically, made up of workers and members of the middle class and members of the new capitalist class working together. The coalition was known as the anti corn Law League, And they were successful in repealing these tariffs. And as a result, workers had access to cheaper food. Now, Marx hated this. He despised the idea that workers would get together not to foment his cherished revolution, but to actually better their living conditions right now. He mistrusted this. He thought that it could not possibly redound to their benefit. Now, some 50 years hence, when Engels was an old man, he was writing the introduction to a new English edition of the conditions of the working class in England. And he had to admit, he could not deny the obvious reality in every English industrial town, that conditions, in fact, had steadily improved. And he did not know what to make of this, except to insist that, yes, the revolution still really was coming. I would say that although Marx was dead wrong about his predictions regarding the fate of the working class and the inevitability of the communist revolution, He did us a great favor, because at least he made testable predictions. He made predictions that the future would show clearly were either true or false. Had conditions gotten better since the 1840s? By the 1890s, it was undeniable that they had. It was undeniable that, to put it in our terms, individuals pursuing their own incentives rather than acting as a class or a collectivity, were capable of bettering their lives. This is a kind of prediction that is also difficult for us to make. I would love to predict specifics about how people will do this in the future. All I can say, though, is that they probably will. I just don't know in exactly what ways, for the old familiar reason. I do not have access to their tacit knowledge. I barely have access to my own tacit knowledge. But as, as I said earlier, I think Marx and the story of his system makes a very good example of how when people think about the future, they don't think in terms of incentives and of individual behavior. They think in terms of heroes and villains and a moralized story that they can tell involving a grand plan for all of society. The proletariat, they were the heroes. The capitalists were the villains. And if you never get further than that, and if you never ask about the individuals who make up these classes, the story is actually pretty satisfying. We like it when evil gets punished. I see why this was an appealing story. That doesn't change the fact that it was a dead wrong story, but it was certainly an appealing one. Another story, and a similar one, concerns the American socialist writer Edward Bellamy, who in 1888 published a tremendously popular book called Looking Backward. The standard line on Looking Backward is that it was really popular at the time, but that it has since largely been forgotten. I'm not sure how that story got started, because I was forced to read this book in high school. And it was terrible. But once again, once again it revealed a mindset that considered all of a society as a whole as an undifferentiated process with moralized heroes and villains and not much regard at all for individual incentives. Bellamy was a socialist and indeed a communist. But he was not a violent communist. He didn't think that we would get to a communist future through a revolution. He thought we would get to a communist future through one of the strangest mechanisms I have ever seen, which was he observed around him that corporations were getting larger and larger, which was true. They were getting larger and larger, both through endogenous growth and also through mergers. So that was one factor in his story. Corporations were getting larger. The second factor was waste. He was very concerned with industrial waste, with products or the raw materials that would go into products going to waste because of industrial competition. And he believed that the source of this waste was indeed competition itself, and that corporations would try to alleviate waste in production by merging one after another with each other. And this would eliminate waste because it would eliminate competition. Bellamy imagined a socialist utopia. It was a utopia that was full of material plenty, a utopia that had great arts and sciences, it was literate, it was urbane. People actually listened to those concerts on the telephone in his book. This, this is right out of his book. And whenever anyone wanted anything, they would order it from a catalog and it would be delivered to them by pneumatic tube. It's a very Victorian kind of technological solution but it also prompted one recent critic to remark of Edward Bellamy that the only thing he managed to predict accurately was the existence of Amazon Prime. I would suggest that we might do better to think about predictions regarding the far future as chiefly informative of the values that the speaker holds. This is not an insult. This is actually interesting. We want to know what people think, and and we should interpret their stories accordingly. We should not imagine that anyone necessarily has predicted the future accurately, because the track record of people who attempt it remains terrible. We should imagine that these people are either trying to warn us, or trying to inspire us, or trying to present us a morality play but they are not forecasting in any scientific sense. And they are not doing so because of the causes that I mentioned, because of the inability of the mind to foresee its own advance, and because of the inaccessibility of consumer tastes, preferences, and values. What would our politics look like if we took this fact of future prediction and its awfulness seriously? What would it look like if more people knew how bad we were at predicting things? I think, I think our politics would look a lot more libertarian. A politics of humility, a politics of modesty in our forecasts and our understandings of how life is going to be, a politics of doubt, these would all be more libertarian than the kinds of politics that are usually practiced today. As I wrote in my book, Technology and the End of Authority, let us resolve to have a politics that is shot through with doubt, so that if it ever comes time to do murder for our politics, our very opinions about politics will make us hesitate long and hard before pulling the trigger. Let us be meta-rational about our politics and recognize that in this area where we humans, have constantly gotten things wrong, we ought to act with humility. In reality, what we have done instead is that we have constantly killed and died in vain. Let us adopt a worldview that accords well with our known human failings. Let us tell ourselves, hopefully, with the ironclad certainty of those fantastic future predictions themselves, that we are prone to being wrong, and that it is ghastly to kill for a mistake. A politics of this type would certainly be libertarian, because it would hesitate to reach for the state to solve our problems. A politics of this type would know that state solutions are commonly the products of experts with predictions. And these expert predictions, as I keep telling you, are not reliable. That said, I would not discourage you from attempting to tell stories, or attempting to see a moral to history, or attempting to look at the past and try to figure out where we might be headed, albeit in a vastly more modest sense. Recognize that you are likely to be wrong, when you make big predictions. But strive, if you please, to tell stories anyway and to tell the best stories that you possibly can. Not about doom and gloom, not about a future revolution or a future utopia, but when you think about the future or about the past, remember that other people will not always behave as you imagine or according to incentives that you personally hold. Remember that they will follow their own incentives, and that this means that they will reach ends that you could not have imagined. Remember that their values and yours are not your own. If it falls to you to craft a policy for all of society, leave room for dissenters to escape. Let them go in peace, provided only that they do the same to others. When you tell stories, remember incentives. Keep them in mind. Tell stories about individuals who strive and succeed at making life better through voluntary private action. Tell stories about how incentives can make life better for all of us. How markets can make people more conscientious, kinder, more honest, more helpful, healthier, literate, and, and, and more wealthy indeed, more wealthy. The first reason that you should tell these kinds of stories is that they are very commonly true. And the second reason that you should tell these kinds of stories is that their moral is true. Markets and other forms of voluntary social coordination do indeed make people more conscientious and kinder and more honest and all of the other qualities that I've named. All of you are here tonight because you have already grasped one of the most difficult ideas in all of intellectual history, that a free people enjoying the rights of private property can make their society better, even without any comprehensive plan for doing so. Indeed, having such a comprehensive plan is a near certain guarantee that the society in question will get worse. What is needed, as Adam Smith knew, are peace, easy taxes, and a tolerable administration of justice. In closing, my message to you, and I know that this is a hard message, is to be less afraid, Be less afraid of the things that you see on the TV news, whether it is CNN or Fox or anything else. The prophets of doom and gloom have been proven wrong again and again and again. And unlike the devotees of many other schools of thought, we are in a good position to say why this is so. There is much work that is left to be done. I do not deny it, but that work will be done best if this advice that I am trying to give you is heeded. Be less afraid. We may not be able to predict the future, but we, among all the ideological persuasions that are out there, we are able to explain how we got to the world that we are in today. A world that is incomparably wealthier than anything that has been seen up until the present day. A world that is more equal, and freer, and more culturally rich, and more varied, and more diverse. And I do not hesitate to say that word. So again, I will repeat my advice in closing. Be less afraid. Good night. So take we, any questions? We can do questions. now yeah. I was just, I, was told, I, I sure. Sure. I, I'd heard a rumor I wasn't supposed to do questions, but I am happy to
0: do questions. So let's do them. Oh, sure, sure. Am I already mic'd? Okay. Well, uh, you pose this problem of future knowledge and predicting the future. What about a book that came out in 1944 that had a prediction about the future? And what would you say about that? And that book was by Hayek. It's called The Road to Serfdom. And the prediction was conditional, not that we would have magical toasters in the future or things like that, but if we continue with these policies, we will get this outcome. The policy, which is always mischaracterized by his critics, was not welfare statism, it was just central planning. That was his single target. Not big government or the welfare state, but just central planning. And he made a prediction. Uh, It didn't happen partly because we got rid of central planning. But do you think that his prediction is subject to the same strictures as the others? And if not, why not?
1: I would say no, and I would say the reason why it is not is that he was not predicting something out of whole cloth. Hayek, by 1944, had seen the rise of totalitarianism in more than one country. And he based his prediction fairly closely on things that had already happened. And when you do that, you're making a much less ambitious prediction in a way than than the person who predicts that the Soviet Union invents the warp drive. We have Philip K. Dick to thank for that one, by the way. Uh, but, But when you observe a phenomenon that has already happened, and when you say that it is subject to possibly happening again, that is a different kind of prediction. That is a prediction that has some empirical basis. It's a much more modest prediction. And so it's not inadmissible at all. Yes, yes, yes. It's an, it's an if-then proposition. That's, that's a very good way of putting it. I agree. Thank you for your conversation tonight, by the way. Um, so I have a question. Um, so Daniel Bell wrote in his Cultural Contradictions of Capitalism that the, the moral foundation of the Protestant ethic and the Puritan temper would be the downfall of capitalism, and that capitalism in that way was self-destructive. Um, I personally disagree with that entirely, but nevertheless, in our modern day, we do see kind of like the degrading of laissez-faire capitalism and more into kind of like a more of like a socialized system. I mean, I hate to say that, but um, so if it's not what Daniel Bell espoused as the Protestant um, ethic and the Puritan temper, what do you believe is the the cause of our slow, gradual degrading of laissez-faire capitalism? I think it's the willingness of individuals to make exceptions. And I've spent a lot of time talking to people on the center left. And they will say, no, I'm not a socialist. I don't think socialism is good. I think that actually having a significant market component to the economy is great. However, I think the government ought to be able to step in in these cases. And they, they do not consider that to be inconsistent. They think that the government has a much greater role to play in the economy, even, when, even if it does fall short of seizing the means of production and implementing socialism. And they don't ask about how this gradually changes conditions on the margin, how each program that is added tends to become immortal, how each exception to the rule gradually nibbles away at the rule until it gets smaller and smaller. And I would encourage them to think more carefully about that, because if they want the market to be an important part of society, then they need to ask the tough question about line drawing that they're trying to avoid. And I, I, would, I would encourage them to, to ask, well, where is the line for you? And, and if they can't come up with one, then maybe they belong in our camp, Possibly. By the way, I should say, uh, Daniel Bell was the father of my academic advisor, David Bell. So I, I am very familiar with him and his, his book.
0: <laughs> OK. Thank you, Jason.